it, it's not only that, but I think what's really coming through is the, the truth that retail is not a commodity. You know, it doesn't matter who's on this floor above you or below you in this office building. It matters in a retail center what tenants are next to each other. It matters to the customer. It matters to the tenant. Um, And in that way, real estate is, uh, or retail real estate is is one of the more creative asset classes because the tenancy drives so much of the value of the real estate. Welcome to the Matthews Mentality Podcast. In this episode, we dive deep into the stories and insights from another legendary leader shaping the landscape of commercial real estate, James Jim Taylor. Jim is a true industry titan. Titan. This is true. (laughs) Titanic. Have you ever been called a titan before? Never. All right. Well, today, first podcast, (laughs) first time referred to as a titan, but I can attest to this, an industry titan and is the chief executive officer of Bricksmore Property Group. Bricksmore BRX uh, is their... What is that acronym? Ticker. Ticker on uh, New York Stock Exchange is a publicly traded real estate investment trust or REIT that owns and operates high quality national portfolio of open air shopping centers. It's 365 retail centers comprise approximately 65 million square feet of prime retail space and established trade areas. Jim was appointed the CEO in May 2016 and in June was appointed a seat on the company's board of directors with a career spanning Multiple decades, Jim brings a, a wealth of experience and expertise that has left an indelible mark on the industry. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Kyle, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. No, I'm, I'm happy. How, how was the walk over? Uh, chilly, but nice, brisk. This, I, this is nice. This is nice weather. It's sunny. It's, what is it, mid-40s? New York, December, I feel like that's a win. It is an absolute win. Now, are you from New York originally? or No, actually, I'm a Navy brat, um, so my early childhood was in Pearl Harbor, and then when I was about eight, we moved from there to the Washington, D.C. area, where I basically went to high school, grew up, and uh, had my first job. So, all right, so you were you born in Honolulu? Actually, I was born in Pascagoula, Mississippi, which Beautiful. was a shipyard town. Uh, my dad was in the nuclear Navy in the submarine program under Rickover, and he was sent from Pascagoula to Hawaii after a near accident uh, to clean up the shipyard. And so... When you're eight years old, you're living in Oahu, <laughs> and they say, hey, we're moving to Washington, D.C., Is that's got to be tough, right? My dad sold me on the idea that snow would be cool. Um, <laughs> I'd never seen it. In fact, I didn't know how to tie my shoes. All I wore were flip-flops. Yeah. Uh, but I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And uh, the only snow you see in Hawaii. That's why I thought yeah. it was cold this morning. The only snow I ever see in Hawaii are those amazing little snow cones you get by the pool. And he probably said, hey, it snow cones from the sky, right? Something like that. But I bought it. All right. So um, let's, we're, we're going to dive into that. But let's talk about what does a typical day look like for you today running a publicly traded company? I don't think there is a typical day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's important to me is to get started early. I'm usually up by five or five 30 and really the first hour or two, that's my time to both read, return emails, but also work out. I love to run in the park, uh, do Pilates a couple of times a week. Uh, but that's really my time to kind of get set for the day because you never know what's going to happen on a given day. Your, your best laid plans are often uh, changed by whatever the facts and circumstances are presented during the day. 
Uh, so for me, getting started early is is very important. Were you are were you always an early riser? Yes, an early to bed. Um, my wife can't stand it, but you know, I, I'm not a good conversationalist. I was going to say, does she ever PM. say like, but what about our time? I don't feel dis <laughs> I, I don't feel connected, Jim. That's, that's good for the morning catch up. <laughs> and, uh, and as long as we have our conversations before nine, we're good. So run in the park. I'm going to do this tomorrow morning. Any recommendation? Do I run like on the sidewalk or the outside or you run the trails throughout? You know, the trails are beautiful. You've got some really nice, not too challenging hills. The reservoir is, is cinder, so it's fun to run around that. Um, I vary up the route, uh, but it's it's kind of a good crowd, and you see a lot of the same people in the morning. What, what is a typical run for you in terms of distance? Typically three to four miles, not too far, just enough to get that heart rate going and clear the mind. And it, were you always a runner, or is this something you've done a little further into your career? You know, I, I've been a runner for a long time. I haven't run as much as I should, um, but, you know, it's actually something you mentioned my father. He ran every every day, and he used to take me out to the high school track, and I would run with him maybe last a lap or yeah. two, and he'd get his workout in. Well, it's better than having your dad take you out and put pads on you. <laughs> my, my old man... You know, I was going down to SC, and he's like, hey, man, we got to toughen you up, so he put some pads <laughs> on me. I don't think I've ever told this story. I was like 17, a total just slap dick, like lazy uh -huh. kid. I was like, I'm going down to SC, play football. He's like, well, you know, he, it was his way of caring. He's like, well, I think I need to help prepare you. So we put pads on and went down to the local park, and I did hitting drills with my dad. That's a <laughs> true story. drills? No, no he, it was more form tackling, uh -huh. you know, again, um, my dad and I are very close. So there wasn't like, we weren't smashing each other. He would kill me. I mean, he's, he was 250 pound ex linebacker, but, um, uh, I would say running is probably a healthier thing to do with your dad than the, the pads. But, um, it's funny you say that my dad had quite a sense of humor and he would show up at football games and be in the stands with a lot of my buddies. And he would yell stuff like, son, don't get your pants dirty, you know, while you're trying <laughs> so to, he's just, he's just messing with you. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so you play football? I did just oh. through high school. Okay, none and of the skilled positions. I was a pulling guard and defensive end. And just running power all day. Yeah, um, and this was in DC, the yeah. DC Metro. All right, so today in, in your role, where, where do you spend most of your time? Most of my time spent with the team, making sure that they're getting the feedback that they need, that they're executing towards the plan. Um, I like to spend time out in the field so I can see not only the assets but the broader organization. It's always been a core belief of mine that great real estate matters, but great people matter far more. If you want an outstanding outcome, you need an outstanding person. You can have a great corner and a mediocre leasing person. You're going to get a mediocre result. The alternative is also true. If you have an okay corner, but an outstanding leasing person, you're going to get an outstanding result. You're going to win business. You have no business winning. And to me, that's my key job. My number one job is talent and culture and putting people in a position where they can succeed. Well, how do you explain Brian Finnegan at Bridgeport then? <laughs> he is exhibit A <laughs> of an outstanding athlete. And Brian is somebody who's committed to continuing to grow. Um, it's something I admire about him. And I know you're joking because- I uh, know, Brian's one of my closest buddies in the business. I met Brian- we were both 22. He was in San Diego, probably uh -huh. at like the, the most low level leasing position, right? At, at Bricksmore might've been like central watt back then, but yeah. um, we were at this like, you know, ICSC, which is the trade show for the retail industry, you know, future leaders. And we just kind of looked at each other like, 
we're the only two guys there, you know, uh, at our age. And I'm like, hey, what's up? What's your name? Is Brian? I'm Kyle, like, <laughs> let's hang out. And so we've, we've always uh, been kindred spirits like that. But for the audience, he has risen through the ranks and is one of uh, Jim's. He's our chief operating yeah. officer, leads all of our revenue redevelopment, um, basically the production side of the house. So I make jokes when I, I, I always like to give a hard time to Brian, but he's, he's great at his job. But anyway, excellent people lead to excellent results, right? And always. So, so you're kind of day to day in there with the team in the huddle, making sure that uh, you can provide them the support and guidance to execute the vision and plan that you predominantly you, and then some of your leadership at Bricksmore have laid out. What, and, you, and you also make the decisions, you make the decisions ultimately with people and you own the decisions of the team. You know, one thing I'm never going to do is second guess somebody. Uh, I will ask what the lesson is when there's a failure. Um, and make sure we dig into that. But it's important to me to empower the team, but also to be there when it's the decision that I have to make. Um, and you know, striking the right balance, I think is important because ultimately when you have great athletes, they wanna be empowered. They wanna be held accountable, but they wanna be empowered. And you know, you've gotta let them make their decisions. Yeah, mistakes happen. and, and- most of the time, you know, you can survive the mistake. You just, where it becomes a problem is where you don't learn from it. Right. right. And so we always say here, like, you gotta, we gotta watch the film, right? Yes. We gotta, we gotta go back and understand how that mistake happened. And again, it's not, not to beat anyone up, but it, we, like, this is how we learn from it. It's, it's failure is a much better teacher than success. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is true. What, what are, uh, what is the vision? What is the plan today for Bricksmore in today's environment? You know, our purpose as a company is remain unchanged, which is to create and own shopping centers that truly are the center of the community they serve. And so our strategy has been a value-added strategy of taking older, well-located shopping centers, bringing in better tenants at better rents, and having them thrive and, and serve the community. And you know it when you see it. You know, it, it as you get a center to that place, it, it's actually interesting. It's no longer a Bricksmore Center, it's that community center. And you have a multitude of uses that connect with and serve that local customer. Um, it's an exciting purpose. Um, I think it's something that we as a broader team have rallied behind. And I'm very proud of what our execution has been over these last seven years, where we've taken a portfolio of 520 assets. I was going to ask, now, when you stepped in the role, you actually had more product, but this is my opinion. You pushback is like, but the quality on average wasn't maybe as high as you wanted it. So it was really just, there were a lot of assets that didn't make sense to own. And what I mean by that is where you didn't have the opportunity to drive growth and ROI. That's ultimately as a capital allocator, what we're held accountable for. And we did, we also were over levered. Um, We had a lot of asset level debt. So, you know, we had, we had a couple of things to tackle. The first was the balance sheet so that we could be in a position to never have to raise capital at a particular point in time. The second, as you were alluding to, is the portfolio. What was part of the IPO story of having already been called wasn't true to me. Um, we had a lot of single asset markets where if you're going to own one asset in a market, you're, you're going to suck. Yeah, it's ineff- very inefficient, too. It is. Um, but, but also, we had a lot of great older assets. And I'm proud of the fact that we're producing more cash flow NOI from 365 assets that we own today than the 520 we started with. Our leverage has come down a couple of turns. We're completely unencumbered. We just got 
upgraded to triple B flat by S and P. That's great. And and so we're now in a position where we can continue to execute upon both the opportunity that we have in the portfolio today, but also um, what we what we see out there. And the- now, did I hear this? Correctly, <clears throat> could have been a rumor about Jim Taylor. There's lots of rumors out there. <laughs> when you took the job, I don't know if it's before or after, did, you went and toured all 500 plus properties. Is that is somewhat it? like Forrest Gump? You know, I this started. Is a true thing. I started a tour across the country. Um, some of the some of the assets I was able to tour with John Schreiber, and he travels yeah. very well, so that made it a little a bit little easier. A little more efficient. Yeah. A little more efficient. But you know, I, I really wanted to actually see what, what the opportunity was. Um, and I spent a lot of time before I came into the company uh, going through eye charts and data and all that, but you really don't know until you actually get out and see the assets. So it's actually interesting, Kyle. I got asked a lot early, what are you gonna do? And I said, well, I see some opportunity, but I don't know, right? And that's. That's a hard thing to say yeah. sometimes in this position. I was going to say most of the time that isn't well received. But, but that's that's the truth. And yeah. really what I meant was I have work to do to set up a plan. I think I have the broad outlines of it, and I'm happy to talk to you about it. But until you really get out and you see the team and you see the real estate, it's conjecture. Well, I want to. Well, I'm going to walk through your story so the audience can understand how you end up as the CEO of a publicly traded company. We touched on being born in Pascaloosa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, growing up in Honolulu and then um, going to DC. Now, uh, family life. What was that like as a kid? What, you know, being a Navy brat. Was were you moving a lot? I mean, we covered a couple, but we actually didn't have to. You know, from eight years old on, I, I was fortunate and able to live in the DC area. Attended the same school from third through twelfth grade. It was small, so somebody like me actually got to play football. I didn't. Didn't have the Matthews gene. Well, neither uh, do I. That's why I'm in real estate. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But but uh, you know, it was it was a, a great place to grow up. And I have a younger sister who now lives in Austin, Texas, that I'm very close to. My father, unfortunately, has passed away. Um, but I was I was blessed to be raised in a house where uh, I knew that I was loved, and I was encouraged to take risks. Um, and you know, that's, that's a pretty powerful combination. I'm, I'm very grateful and fortunate for that. And so, all right, were you, um, were you, how would, if I were to sit with your dad or your mom and say, Hey, what was Jim like as a kid? How would, how do you, I know it's a tough question because you were young, but maybe you received feedback as you got older, but how would they describe you? Were you, were you, you, in my opinion, who you are today, very disciplined, very studious, (laughs) always impeccably dressed or absolutely not you know um as i as i mentioned i didn't know how to tie my shoes in third grade imagine that i had the teacher in your defense as you were on the (laughs) islands like why would you wear shoes in hawaii but um you know actually as a child i had pretty severe dyslexia and i think the gift in that was it taught me persistence um and i actually think that uh, if you were to ask my parents about me, they would say I was uh, very persistent and stubborn. Um, And yet, you know, as a kid, being a little bit different, not being able to complete the reading assignments, so forth, was tough. And, you know, for me, uh, I, I finally sort of got over the hurdle, if you will, in seventh grade, where I 
I really began to love reading. Um, the dyslexia still shows up from time to time. You can see it in uh, some of what I write. Uh, but for me, it was um, it 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 was some it was a gift in that I thought about things differently. I had to think about things differently. Have you ever read the book? I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. It's called David vs. Goliath. I have. Yeah. He, there's a chapter on dyslexia, and it was something, and I don't want to misquote it, but there is a massively disproportionate amount of the most successful people have that. Yes. And so because mm. they struggled in school to keep up, because so much of schoolwork is reading and being assigned paper to read and to understand, they had to develop other talents and skills to compensate, one of which is they tend to be phenomenal listeners because right. they have to. Because if a teacher says, hey, I want you to go read this chapter and tell me, you know, and learn it, it's it's much harder. It takes a lot longer, very frustrating for people with dyslexia. But they, and again, I... I well, Alice might disagree yeah, with that characterization, okay. but I think there's some truth to it. And I also think it teaches... If, if you get after it, persistence. And, and it also, you have to develop skills to get at problems from slightly different directions. You have to think outside of the box. Um, you know, I was, I, I was pretty hyperactive too as a kid, uh, which people find surprising. Uh, I couldn't sit still in a chair. Um, and, uh, but I had a gift of some teachers early on who recognized something and encouraged me and supported me in addition to my family uh, such that, you know, I, it was able to become a strength. When, when, when you have a, explain to the audience dyslexia, I want to make sure that they understand what it is. At, at its essence, it's how your brain processes information. I see letters on a page differently than you might, and it can be auditory as well. I might hear speech patterns differently than you do. And so what that means is if you if I want to get the same information that you would out of a passage, I've got to read it a couple of times. Um, I've got to scan it. I've got to look back at it. I've got to see what the active words are. Um, and it's it's a different level of effort, uh, but it's a muscle. And the more that you use it, um, the more rewarding it can be. And were there ever moments um, when you were younger where you – I don't know, so felt sorry for yourself or you were kind of like, why me? Um, never. No? Never. Um, and I think part of that was, I, I mentioned before, the love and support that I got from my parents and their unflappable belief in me and my potential. And they, they always encouraged me to go out and, and try to take risks. And for that, I'm very grateful. Would you say because of dyslexia, at least up until seventh and eighth grade. And even after that, it still maybe takes a little more time, but that you had to work harder than everyone else to, to get the same outcome in a, in a, in that type of setting. Without a doubt. And it became my secret weapon. I was going to say, you see where I'm going with this? Like, yeah, it, yeah. It became my secret weapon <laughs> in terms of, I continued to pursue opportunities that challenged me fundamentally. Think about it. I was an accountant. I was then in law school and in a practicing attorney for a few years. And I, I had an innate sense that if I worked on areas of weakness, I would develop more quickly than simply going to whatever I thought felt good. Well, you, you, got, you decided to 
get into retail during the uh, quote unquote Amazon <laughs> apocalypse, like coming out of the GFC, it was a tough time in retail for a long time. Right now we kind of, from an operations, we're having our moment, right? It's, it, it's, it's a, not only that, but I think what's really coming through is the, the truth that retail is not a commodity. You know, it doesn't matter who's on the floor above you or below you in this office building. It matters in a retail center what tenants are next to each other. Sure. It matters to the customer. It matters to the tenant. Um, and in that way, real estate is, uh, or retail real estate is, is one of the more creative asset classes because the tenancy drives so much of the value of the real estate. I agree. Uh, as a retail guy, I'm biased, but... Uh, <laughs> All right, so high school, good student? Yeah, I was. I was. By the time I got into high school, um, I was you know, able to compete academically. Um, I tested, ironically, very well. Um, as I thought about college, I thought about some of the schools in the Northeast. I, I thought about Duke. I can't even believe I'm saying that. Uh, but, but Virginia always had my heart. And my father's favorite refrain as a uh, senior government uh, executive was because we were in state. Virginia's a fine school son. Yeah, because <laughs> you get that in-state tuition too. Yeah. Um, I, I went to Virginia. My, my younger brother, Clay, um, he's senior year at SC. They played at Virginia. Yeah, and my dad and I went out, and I, I hadn't been to Charlottesville yet, and it was, I mean, it was incredible. It's Mr. Jefferson's University is a fine place. It is, yeah. And and, and so, um, you you go to the University of Virginia. How was how was college? It was fun. I think I majored in fraternity. I was going to say <laughs> you, you join a fraternity. I did, and uh, I lived in the fraternity house all three years. I made some deep, enduring friendships. Um, you know, I I really took that period of time because I was seventeen when I started college. It was. Was that just because you were young for your grade? Yes. Yeah. I, I remember that. I didn't know if you were one of those nerds. You graduated early. You know? <laughs> my mother uh, dealt with my hyperactivity by sending me to school a year early and telling oh, the wow. school I was older than I was. Um, this is real. This is yeah, true. that really happened. She just had to get me out of the house. So. Um, uh Yeah, but for me, college was a chance to mature. Yep. Um, a chance to be independent, um, and I had a great time. Uh, 1988, the year I graduated, wasn't a great year in the uh, employment market. Well, that was after, what, the SNL? Yeah, right yeah. after the SNL, ironically, and you think about how that still reverberates today through our business. And that but, was a, so I was going to ask, what did you major in, you know, accounting, and then the SNL was driven by an accounting change, if I'm not mistaken, like uh, the, the tax, crisis. Yeah. The, the, the 1986 the, yeah, me, the tax, yeah. tax Reform Act yeah. uh, changed the way you could uh, depreciate uh, real estate against ordinary income. It, yeah. it changed the passive income loss rules, which changed the valuation um, and created a crisis on the books of the savings and loans who were overexposed to real estate. So actually, when I started at Price Waterhouse. One of the first things I did was a special assignment for the Resolution Trust Corporation, which was a government entity set set up to yeah, RTC, bail, out, yeah. bail out these uh, SNLs. And one of my early experiences, which was pretty apocryphal, was going into a savings and loan in New Jersey with cardboard boxes, telling people to put their personal belongings in them and that they were to leave. 
I was. Did a, you did they give you like one of those coats you get to wear? No, I didn't. It was not anything like uh, NCIS yeah. or anything that dramatic. We we did have FBI agents alongside yeah. us, and our job as the accountants were to open up the books and understand, uh, you know, what had what had been happening. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, so hadn't thought about that in a while. Why did you choose accounting? I could get a job. Okay. Um, I I was interested in business. Uh, I thought accounting would give me exposure to a lot of different businesses. In fact, one of my other early clients was Giant Food of Landover, whose uh, principal was a guy named Izzy Cohen, really a genius in the grocery business. And I audited the cash on the books of uh, Giant Food, learned a little bit about the grocery business, actually got to spend time with Izzy, which was something as I was in the early point of my career, was quite formative for me that somebody of his stature would take an interest in me, spend some time with me, explain the business. And I still use some of what I learned auditing the cash of giant food. I was going to say, who is the most notable client you ever had the privilege or misfortune of working with? Giant food, uh, without a doubt. But other clients included USA Today, which was interesting, and the Gannett Television Network. That was a lot of fun because I got to go audit television stations, including Boston during the Celtics run. You being an accountant, is this is this pretty much the only reason you choose to be friends with Don Woods, CEO of Federal? Because <laughs> he's also an accountant and he needs friends? He is a great guy he's great. and a dear friend. Do uh, you actually like classic cars or you just do that because you know Don does and you don't want to break his heart? Well, I would love to say that because I hope he hears that. But we both have a passion for it. My my dad's father uh, was a mechanic with a seventh grade education. And in the summers, I would go up and work for Pop in Pennsylvania. And he always had an old car that he was working on. And uh, in fact, when I turned 16, uh, he told my father he would get an old car for me. And my father thought it would be a conservative sedan. I took the Greyhound bus up to Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and he opens up the barn door and there is a 1964 teal blue Thunderbird with a 390 wow. Cobra jet engine, dual exhaust. Definitely a good, not a great a, car for a, a 16 year old. Now you're, you're, your, I don't want to say dream car, but your favorite car, isn't it like a 1960s Mercedes? If I'm, I remember you and I were talking about this. Well, I, I'm fortunate enough to have a 1959 190SL. That's right. okay. It is, is by far the prettiest car that I have. Got but it. asking me what my favorite car is know, is like asking me what, who my favorite child is. I just can't get there. Well, you've told me who you favorite. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll cut the part out, Zach, where he, he actually told me who his favorite child was. So. Um, yeah, well, okay. So Izzy and giant food, your most notable client, it is speaking of Don, you know, he, his, his most notable client was Trump. You remember, yeah. remember that story? Um, anyway, all right. So you're, you're in accounting, you're learning a lot and you're doing this for what? Three, four years. I did it for three years. But and then you went back to school. I went back to law school and my, my decision was, I'd had a background in business. I'd gone to the comp school undergrad. I'd taken a lot of finance classes. I recognized that graduate school was an opportunity as a more mature professional to take a step back and refocus on learning and refocus on expanding your opportunity set. And for me, I thought law school would do that. I really enjoyed law school. It was tough. Um, but I was a bit older and I approached it with a level of discipline that actually made it easier. And, you know, I think a lot of people would 
you know, it, it, I went to Virginia, a lot of people would spend tons of time in the library and, and kind of make like they were working. I just, I just pursued a pretty consistent schedule like I had done as an accountant where I made sure I worked out, I took care of myself, um, I, that I read my notes before the class, that I did the reading, but I didn't cram. I just, I just approached it very you disciplined. You had a disciplined way. approach. Yeah. yeah, and it really paid off. Um, I made law review. I did very well. Um, I was recruited coming out of law school by a number of different firms. And I chose one where my wife was from called Hunt and Williams and went into their corporate and securities group, which was um, a great, great team that started getting really busy taking these things called REITs public. Mm. And I didn't choose to go into REITs. They pulled me into the team because yeah, they, they, were, they were too busy. Well, real quick. Okay, so Hunt and Williams, what, where were they located? You said in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia. And, and you said this is where your wife was from. Had you, had you met your wife already? I, I had. I met her at an engagement party for an, an, another couple of friends. Was this when you were going to get your, your law degree? I was still at Price Waterhouse. Got it. Um, we were both at an engagement party. She was on a date with somebody else, somebody that I you knew. Just, you just punked them. Well, I basically grabbed her elbow and, and whispered in her ear that she was wasting her time. It didn't work at first, but... <laughs> I was going to say, is this real? You actually did True. This? I did. I you're, did. Man, you're a killer. Um, and she just was like, hey, get away from me, creep. Well, she looked at me kind of funny. Um, I'll never forget the expression. But fortunately, uh, we both happened to be at a cookout the next night, and we had an opportunity and to. So sit. You, you you thought I'm going to do a different strategy this time, <laughs> and it it paid off. We, you know, we we found That's ourselves funny. talking for a couple of hours, and it was like no time went by. That's great. And so, um, so when you went back to school, did she? Did she stay in Richmond or? She did. And uh, she, she worked and, um, uh, you know, I had the luxury of being able to go to school and I'd saved up some money so I didn't have to borrow too much, which I always concerns me. Um, and we got married my third year of law school. Very cool. And, yeah. then, and so then you took the job at Hunter Williams. Hunter and Williams. Hunter yeah. Williams in Richmond. And you were busy uh, taking REITs public. Yeah, and it was it was a grind. You know, one of the tough parts about being a transaction attorney is you're there to document the battle after the battle has occurred, the negotiations, the positioning of a company by the bankers. Um, it was a lot of work. I, I learned a lot, um, but in the role, I always was curious about the other side. Mm -hmm. What was the rationale for this merger? Why does this company make sense? to go public? What is it about their business plan that differentiates them from others? And I'd ask a lot of questions and I'd ask a lot of questions of the bankers and developed relationships and trust with a number of them such that um, after three or four years at the law firm, I started getting approached by some of these investment banks about, hey, Jim, have you thought about coming over to the dark side, coming over to investment banking. And as, as someone, and as an attorney working on the deals, you saw the amount of money and you're like, oh, what am I <laughs> that doing? That didn't hurt. <laughs> that didn't hurt. But really the motivation Got for it. me has never been the, the money. It's always been the opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that money follows growth. And if you make money the primary objective, you'll be disappointed if you, if you sacrifice the opportunity for growth. In, in, in the sake of trying people to People talk money. about time 
when they're, especially when they're interviewing, I'm looking to grow. What, what did growth mean for you? And what did, what do you think growth means for a lot of people when they say that interviewing with you for an assignment? I think it's being in that territory that's uncomfortable. When you were training for football, it wasn't easy. No. It hurt, right? And the harder you trained, the harder it hurt. Um, but that's it's, not just a metaphor. It actually physically hurt. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you've got to put yourself in positions where you're stretched, where you're uncomfortable. If you're too comfortable, growth does not occur, period. And so to me, that's the most fundamental element of it. And, you know, I mentioned some of my career I almost intentionally pursued areas that were not my strengths. Uh, accounting, uh, you know, was not a core strength. Uh, but I, I went after it. I learned. I made mistakes. Uh, learned from those and continued to. Um, you had it like it's a very very interesting. Uh, I don't even say background, but foundation. So at this point. You have a background in accounting. Right. You have a background in law. Right. And now you're going into effectively the investment side. So talk to us about that um, decision. Well, it was it was a risk for me because I was on the partnership track at Hunton. I was promised great things if, if I stayed at the firm. I had a window office with a view of the river and an assistant outside, two paralegals. You're living the good life. I was I was freaking the man. You made it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yet I wasn't entirely happy, and I began to entertain more seriously the outreach from some of the investment banks I had worked with. And uh, I ultimately decided to take a little bit more of a risky path. I chose a startup investment banking group that was going to be headed up by a guy named Lawrence Gray at a, at a firm called Wheat First Butcher Singer that was in the process of being acquired by First Union. And I thought, wow, you know, this is really getting in on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. I'd had an opportunity to go to New York and join a more established practice. But I thought particularly because of my, uh, you know, not typical way of getting into the business, mm -hmm that being part of a team at, at its start would be more exciting. And also, I really had a great deal of respect and trust for Lawrence, and that was important to me. Um, and, and that proved to be well-placed. Uh, but I went from this great, you know, Riverview office to I literally, my next office was a closet. <laughs> and was was this in, was this still in Richmond though? It was still in Richmond, okay. so I didn't have to uproot my family, which certainly played a role. Um, but really, the driver for me, Alice has always been very supportive. The driver for me was getting in at the ground level. This was a regional investment bank about to be acquired by a larger, super regional in First Union, and I thought, huh, this could be exciting. Was it? It was. Yeah, I mean, we went. Over the course of the next seven or eight years, it was an overnight success, eight years in the making. Overnight. <laughs> um, we went from nowhere in the league tables to top two, top three, number one on M&A, equity, debt. Wow. And it was awesome, right? And we put ourselves in a position, as we love to say, to win business. We had no business winning. We didn't have the Goldman Sachs business card. We didn't have, you know, the Morgan Stanley business card. We had First Union Capital Markets, which is a painful acronym, by the way, and we still won. 
right? And in the way that we... F-U-C-M, okay. <laughs> I had one great client say, you got to change your name before I sign this You're engagement like, no, letter. That, that, yeah, that's funny. I mean, they remember you. Yeah, they did. That's funny. Um, and uh, so, all right, so how long were you in that role? And then ultimately, what caused you, I don't want to say leave, maybe were you acquired? Like what, what happened? Well, you know, the business was going great. And as often can happen, you have external events intervene. And mm -hmm. for me, it was a great financial crisis where uh, Wachovia, which First Union had become at that point, uh, failed and was acquired by Wells Fargo. And it was a fascinating time, a time where I remember certain days in five-minute increments, like watching the credit default swaps in Wachovia on the Friday before they failed. Um, and I, I, learned, I learned a great deal about managing teams through crisis and how to be honest with them, how to keep their support. Uh, but you know, we, we were able to convince the leadership at Wells that we had a great business, that we weren't taking exorbitant balance sheet risk, which was what their view of Wachovia generally was, mm -hmm. and got them to commit to taking on our team. So we were actually folded into Eastill Secured, which at the time was owned uh, by, by Wells, Wells yeah. run okay. by a wonderful guy, Roy March. And uh, I originally resisted being merged into a brokerage operation, but it, it ended up being one of the best things that could have ever happened because we brought the public markets expertise that we had with the property level and asset level and private equity expertise that Eastill had. And it was a fun run. Yeah. I was there for about three years and you were asking, why did I change? Yeah. Why did I leave investment banking? Well, we had gone through the merger team was running great. Admittedly, I was never home. Um, I didn't feel like I was being a good parent. And I also had an itch. Um, I hadn't, I'd, I'd done investment banking. We were good at it, but what more could I do? Um, and again, it was never for me about the money because you know, we, were, we were doing quite well. It was really about the growth and the opportunity. And as you mentioned, Don Wood is a very dear friend of mine, and he knew that I was interested in moving to the principal side. Uh, and so he approached me and said, it's, it's now it's, or never. It's Taylor. time. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that. Let me, let me, I don't know, kind of, you, you said you're admittedly traveling a lot and, um, causing strain of family. What did the family look like at the time? So was I you had Alice, how many kids you have? Two daughters, two daughters. beautiful girls, Gracie and Mary Lyle. Uh, Gracie at the time was in uh, eighth grade, I believe, and Mary Lyle was in sixth grade, uh, both in the D.C. area. So you're, you're in D.C. by now. We're in D.C. One of the byproducts of the merger with Wells was they wanted the head of real estate investment banking to either be in New York or D.C. Richmond was not an option. Not an and, option. Uh, and then this was before... Uh, <laughs> Today's remote work, right? Right. Yeah. right. So um, we had moved and, uh, you know, I had put the girls through the move and then I wasn't home, right? Yeah. Because I was in New York, I was in California. And uh, I didn't feel like I was being the father I needed to be. And that was far more important. And so that, especially when you, you know, when you start building a family and raising children, uh, calculus changes. The calculus, yeah, the, the calculus changes. Uh, what, 
looking back, would you do anything different? Would, you know, cause like the, the people talk all the time. I, I, about, I don't yeah. think you'll ever regret a moment of time mm -hmm. spent with your children and your loved one. And so, you know, where you made decisions that put that at jeopardy, you just have to think about it and strike the right balance. Um, obviously, um, you've got to balance the career with your family life. And the only way that I think you can be effective is if you achieve that balance. By the way, that doesn't mean not working hard, yeah. right? It just means making sure your priorities are in the right place and making sure that when you're at work, you're focused on what's important and that you're valuing your time because your family's valuing your time. Uh, going back to, to your career building, you know, starting at PWC, then going back getting a law degree, then going into law and then going into investment banking, obviously. Um, it's a checkered past. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's a very, I mean, you're covering so many different bases, uh, but I wanted to talk about the balance thing because <clears throat> so many, as you, I'm sure you know, so many young professionals come in with this expectation of balance right away. Did you have balance in your twenties and thirties? As, 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 absolutely as, not. Absolutely not. And, and, you know, there's no substitute for working hard, right? It was what got me through my dyslexia as a child. It is what got me through much of the opportunity and created the opportunity I had. Um, so, you know, balance can be an elusive term. To me, what it means is having your priorities in the right place and making sure that you understand what your purpose is um, and committing yourself fully to it. You don't go halfway. You don't, you don't win by sort of taking it easy. Balance is not taking it easy. On the other side, when you're with your family, and I know you as a father of your two young girls, you're there, you're present, you're in the moment. They know that you love them. And to me, there's nothing that's more important than that. It's the same I, I had as a, children's, as a child. So shame on me if I'm not offering my children the same type of nurture and support. But they appreciate that I work hard and uh, they uh, are, are supportive of that. And so, how, what is your opinion or advice? It's kind of both when, when you have, whether you're interviewing or you, or you, you meet a young professional who, whether it's their first day or a couple years in is like, but, but Jim, what about my work-life balance? You know, uh, my advice, which sometimes I feel like advice is the lowest form of communication because it's one way. Uh, I would ask them, what do they mean by that? I would, I would try to draw out from them what their, what their hopes and goals are and, and, and challenge them. And you know, what I'm looking for in, in talent always is integrity, which to me is the courage to confront reality, passion, not accepting good enough. If you don't have passion, I'm not interested in you. If you don't have a desire to be great in what we're doing, then you're not the member of the team I want to play with. I want to play against you, right? Yeah, that's good. And, good way and, to put it. And so, um, you know, I, if, if somebody were to approach me with that question, I'd try to draw them out a little bit to better understand what it is they mean um, because it's a pretty soft and elusive concept. It is. I think, yeah, I think the, the stereotype out there is work-life balance in their 20s is like, 
I want to grow in my career. I want to make more money. I want to become the boss, but I don't want it to affect my personal life. Yeah, you know, and I, I've been blessed uh, throughout my career to have had the opportunity to work with people who are just starting in their career, um, whether it was at Price Waterhouse or Hunt and Williams or really in the investment banking team, where in today at, at Bricksmore, where we have younger people just starting. And I am blown away by how committed these folks have been, um, how much they've achieved. I love watching them grow. I love challenging them. We recently had an alumni event for the uh, Wells Fargo real estate investment banking team over here in Hudson Yards last year. And I, my buttons were bursting, right? Just watching all these people who had come through the team that we're now doing great things, portfolio managers, CFOs, COOs, um, really showing that they, with that common background, had, had learned and had grown. Um, and so, you know, I, I, um, I'm not one of those who sort of puts that into an entire category of, you know, the kids are different today. Oh, I think, I think every, every generation said, Oh, the kids are different. That's, <laughs> I, I, I was talking to someone the other day where I was like, I, I think a lot of that's overblown. We're generalizing. You're going to meet that, that version. But I said, I'll speak for Matthews is we have a lot of young guys and gals that are very motivated and very driven and um, where their priorities as they understand them are aligned and, where they want to go in life requires them to work hard, so they work hard. Well, and Kyle, it is truly amazing what you have built. Um, you know, your platform, your presence in the industry, it's a real testament to your leadership and, frankly, your entrepreneurialism and your risk-taking. It, it truly is amazing. Oh, I appreciate I mean, I'm it. sitting here on the 28th floor of a tower in Manhattan looking at a bunch of killers out there making it happen. They're trying to find some product for Bricksmore to buy, you know? <laughs> They're not working hard enough. So afterwards, I'll, I'll get out and well, bring I'll, them into the uh, huddle. A lot, you know, hey, it's, uh, <laughs> I thank you for saying that. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be where I am if I, if you, had, back when I, my brokering days before even Matthews, uh, Bricksmore gave me the opportunity to represent you guys on some sales and continue to do so. So thank you for that. Well earned. Um, that's only that's the only way I could get a guy like Jim on the podcast. You know, I was like, uh, you know, have it. What have did it, you call me? A titan? A titan. <laughs> titan. I'm gonna trademark that. Yeah. Jim the Titan Taylor. Yeah. TT. <laughs> there you go. When you get back to the office, just to your teammates, just say, hey, moving forward, I would like to be referred to as the Titan. Well, I'm going to get a jersey on the way back. There you go. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be sporting right. it. So speaking of Titans, uh, you know, I hate to stoke John, Don's, Don's ego, but speaking of also Titans in the in the real estate industry and the, specifically the retail space, how did you meet Don at Federal? Was it at East Still and then? It was when I was at the predecessor yeah, of Wachovia, yeah. and we were working with Federal as they were considering uh, some strategic alternatives at the time. And I had the opportunity to meet Don and immediately was drawn to him. I liked him. I thought he thought about the business in a very interesting way, given his background at Caesars and ITT. Um, and, you know, just, just a force. Um, and, and where did he start his, what, what accounting firm did he start? He was at Anderson. That's right. And, yeah. yeah. Anderson yeah. Cooper. That's right. Um, not and, Anderson Cooper, Arthur, Arthur Anderson. Anderson. I'm Anderson Cooper, Arthur Anderson. <laughs> we'll cut out Arthur Anderson, Arthur Anderson. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace, Arthur Anderson, you know? Right. But, um, so he just called you one day and said, Hey, it's time. Well, we, we had worked together for several years and, 
we were fortunate enough to do several public capital markets transactions and advisory assignments. So I was in some ways the outside member of the federal team. And through that course of interaction, Don and I built a great relationship, uh, a lot of respect for him, a lot of trust. And uh, he's, he has really created an amazing company. Federal is the Yankees in, in our yeah. space. And you know the opportunity to come on board and, and help drive the strategy of the company going forward uh, was too good to pass up, particularly at that point in my life. And I learned a ton from Don about leadership, about motivating, about setting he's, clear goals and holding people accountable. And holding people accountable. He's got a yeah. great personality. People love him, but he also, you know, he his accountability, you know. He, he, he uh, really does, and, and he does it in a clear and fair way. Um, so people understand what's expected of them. And uh, it's, it's frankly something that I've borrowed um, in terms of that focus on the objectives, the goals, um, honest assessment of where you've fallen short, how do we attack the problem going forward. Um, and this is in 2012. Right. And so you make the move um, from the investment banking world to federal was part of that an understanding and maybe even this was something you spoke about with Don when when you're you know interviewing and or being hired for the role that the hours the travel being more present at home was that part of the driver well it was I knew that we were going to be working hard right we had a lot of exciting things going on as we were growing the mixed-use division uh, but I would have to travel less which was important I was basically getting to the point where I was living out of a suitcase yeah. um, but you know, more importantly, though, and this is important to understand as people face uh, life decisions, I was moving towards an opportunity, an opportunity for growth, an opportunity to become a principal, as I like to say, having to eat your own cooking. Yeah. Um, and you know that that's a different mindset. That's a different set of muscles. And I thought there's no one better to learn that from than Don Wood and no place better to, to develop than federal. Than federal. And this was 2012, you made right. the move. I met you in 2013, it was November 2013 at the, I think it was the Breath of Life yeah. Gala in DC, um, which is a, a a big charity that focuses on- Persistic fibrosis. Yes, yeah, cystic right. fibrosis, mm -hmm. which Don is, is very, very involved in. And um, that's where I first met you. What was the, the role that you were hired to federal? What was the title? So I was chief, in, uh, chief financial officer, and I also ran investments for the eastern half of the country. So I played both a role leading the capital markets and investor relations and accounting groups, but also had the opportunity to go out and source uh, growth opportunities for the company. Were you nervous on your first uh, co earnings call? Did, you, did, did Don give you the mic? Absolutely. I think you're nervous on every earnings call. Yeah. If you don't, it's like playing a game. If you don't get butterflies, you're not on. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're not thinking about it. And uh, uh, so, sure, was nervous. I think, actually, if I remember, Don probably remembers this, the conference call line broke down on our, my first conference call. It was so, actually strategic by you. <laughs> not they at asked, all. They asked a question you weren't ready for, and you're like, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I think no, our line's been cut. Not, not at all. So we actually had to announce a delay in the conference call, which is never a good thing no. uh, due to technology. But from there, it was only up. And so you were there in this role 
for almost four years, right? Correct. Yeah. And so talk to me about uh, Bricksmore. How did that come about? So uh, I was approached by our mutual friend, Dan Hurwitz, um, who I had grown to know the in Godfather. the industry. Yeah. And have tremendous respect for. Dan had stepped into the interim As CEO interim, role yeah. following mm-hmm. an accounting scandal. Speaking um, of accounting. Yeah. Right. I remember and, that. And uh, he had approached me uh, to say, this is something you should consider. He had talked to Don and we were open and above board about it, which I think is important. And, uh, you know, I I thought interesting opportunity. And Dan really really invested the time to make sure I understood the opportunity. He had spent time with his partner, Joe Tishar, kind of tearing apart the organizational structure, spending time understanding the portfolio and the strategy. So Dan really afforded me a running start, which I'm very grateful for, including the assessment of some of the talent, like our friend, Mr. Finnegan, who I I love to joke, was the head of leasing to whom no one reported. To no one. I stepped into uh, an organizational structure that Dan highlighted, had way too many direct reports to the CEO. I think there were 20. And my first observation was, I'm going to have a difficult time remembering 20 names, much less having 20 direct reports. I think it was in the 72 hours between the the CEO exiting and then the interim, which was Dan, I think Finnegan gave himself that title. And then when Dan <laughs> stepped in, he said, you're head of leasing. He goes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and Dan just, you know, he was running a million miles an hour. He never, he never actually dug in. So you might want to check Brian. Verify on that. that. Yeah, you know, yeah. those Philly guys, right? Right. Well, love it. Love yeah. it. So you step in or well, talk to me about the interview process. Um, I don't want to make assumptions. I assume this was a job you coveted. You're like, man, this would be great to get it. It was a job I was highly interested in, but I, I needed to learn more. And you know, the the funny part, Dan and I joke about this, is I remember meeting with him in his office um, a couple of weeks after the onset of the process. And he just looked back and I was expecting an interview. He leaned back in his chair and he said, you really should take this job. And here's why. Hmm. And, um, and then I, interviewed with a few other people, some Blackstone folks yeah. and they had, the general they had a, counsel. They had a big chunk at the time. They did. Yeah. They owned uh, 50% of the company. They all said, you should really take this job. The only person who gave me a tough interview was my good friend and former chief talent officer, Carolyn Singh. Huh. She grilled me. Um, but you know what I found was a company that wasn't fully broken, that um, had some cultural challenges, Uh, that had some opportunity in the real estate that had been being run for occupancy rather than growth. And, and I saw in that also a great team. Uh, And it it really struck me. My first day on the job was at ICSC in Vegas. And I had the opportunity to sit down with folks like Brian and Steve Kaufman and David Gersenhaber as they were meeting with tenants. And what really struck me was the level of trust that team had built with our core tenants. So much so that I was hearing admissions against interest from the tenants as they were talking about locations that they wanted to move or relocate or where they were gonna exercise an option. And it made a deep impression on me. Mm. It made me realize that there was some real found organizational strength um, that just needed to be it was like an uncut, reoriented. Yeah, it was like an un, uncut gem almost. It um, really was. And so 
Yeah, you know, I sent in my resume when that job came open. Dan, Dan never returned my call. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't get it, Kyle. It got. Sp- I I sent so many email blasts from listings. It got spam trapped because I had been flagged as a mass mass emailer. No, no, that was. Uh, yeah, I remember that. I you know obviously I knew Dan at the time, and then I had, was fortunate enough to have gotten to know you at Federal. So when you got the job, I was very happy for you. Well, thank you. Um, it's been so, a fun ride. It has. Yeah, I mean you've been there seven years, and and uh, you know. Was it 550 to 350? I'm, I'm roughing the numbers out, but you guys have done a lot in, in that time. We have, and I'm excited about not only the transformation that's occurred, but how we're positioned in this environment to continue to grow. Not only continuing to reinvest in our assets, but I think this capital markets disruption is going to create some interesting opportunities for larger, well-capitalized platforms that have scale. Because it's more important than ever for the retailer to have a landlord counterparty that they know can execute. And I think we're well positioned for that. I, I will, let me push pause on right now because I, I, I do want to spend some time on what you're seeing out there. I know there's a, there's a lot of disruption in the, the real estate industry as a whole, obviously with the um, with rate hikes and then you know maybe where is the economy going to go? Is it going to slow down? Is it going to contract? But I did, I wrote down just now listening to you, um, I meant to ask the question, so I'm going to ask it now. You're, you're in D.C., you've been in D.C. now for almost a decade. Your wife, Alice, two daughters, they're, you know, you got roots. Oh, I don't want to say once in a lifetime, but a unique career opportunity presents itself. You're offered the job at Bricksmore, but that comes with relocating to New York City, correct? It did. And how was that? Uh, it, actually, it actually worked out at a perfect time for, for the family uh, in that my older daughter, Gracie, was beginning her first year at Virginia. Okay. Um, in fact, I d- dropped her off at school in the pickup, threw her bags in her room, and then carted our stuff up like the, the clampets to New York City, <laughs> New York City, where it was fancy. And we, we knew that we had to make a change for our younger daughter, Mary Lyle, who also has dyslexia. Uh, in terms of school. And uh, we knew that the school she was going to at the time didn't have the right type of setup for Resources. her. And such a school existed in New York. What grade was she in at the time? She was going into ninth grade. So Okay, so there's a you know junior high to high school, generally right. speaking, anyway. So Never easy to, to no. uproot your family, but I just happened to be fortunate in that the timing worked. Was more, yeah, was if, if, if it's ever convenient, which it's not, it was yeah. more convenient. Yeah, I moved 30 times, I think. You know, now, I, oftentimes I go back to the same school, so like eight different schools, but I, I know what it's like to, to go sure. to a new school. And uh, it's never convenient, but, um, but it sounds like... It teaches like, resilience, too. I, I was, uh, I, yes, it does. And it teaches, um, I don't want to say sales skills, it kind of teaches, ideally, it puts you in a position that forces you to learn kind of adaptability. Indeed. Where you are dropped into a school where everybody knows them and you don't, and you effectively have to get them to accept you, ideally, as quickly as possible. Right. The fact that you were a good football player probably didn't hurt. It, yeah, it, well, you know, <laughs> when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't play football till ninth grade. I played wow. s- soccer, baseball, basketball. Um, I didn't play football. Uh-huh. Yeah, weirdly enough, I, I started playing in ninth grade. But yeah, sports is, you know, that's a longer conversation, but sports helps. But uprooting your family, D.C. to New York, but it does sound like if there were, ever was a time to do that, the, the stars align there. So that, okay. Yeah, yeah, very fortunate. And 
also really was was grateful uh, for Don and and the the experience that he had given me and his support. Wait, when you was he aware, or when you went in and told him and you said, "This is funny." We had Don on the podcast. He told a story about a, a a young guy who like was there for two or three years. He came in. He's like, "Hey, you know, Mr. Wood, I'm I'm leaving to go to yeah, whatever. I don't know, a competitor, and just want to thank you." And he said, "Hey, you know, I wish you luck, but you're dead to me." Did he say that to you? Did he say, "Jim, quite I the wish contrary. you luck, but right. you're dead to me"? Quite the contrary. Don was was very supportive. I. Uh, of course, told him I was considering the opportunity, and he was supportive. Um, and uh, you know, he he remains one of my dearest friends. I know today. you guys. Uh, I know you guys spend a lot of time together. Was it every August you go to? Was it Pebble Beach and do a car show and all that? We we do more than that. I mean, there's Raleigh, there's Pebble Beach, there's uh, Kissimmee, the auction down there. So um, I'm actually having trouble keeping up with the auctions. I know we're going to get you, we're going to get you guys out to Nashville for a concert. You know, we were talking about that over the summer, but then, you know, a couple moving parts, but um, all right. So what are you seeing? Again, this isn't a real estate podcast, even though you and I are both in real estate, but I very much want to just take a little time here. Talk to me about what are you seeing in the industry? If you're, if you're comfortable commenting on, on more than just retail, what are you seeing across product types? Obviously, as a public company, there's certain things you can't talk about, so we don't need to dive into that. But what, are you, how's it, what, what, are you, what is your experience right now? Well, I think we've just gone through an unprecedented or apocryphal event in the pandemic and what the government's response to it was in the vast amounts of liquidity yeah. that were injected into the system. Like Seven trillion. And we saw the natural uh, reaction to that, which was inflation. We now are on the other side of that. The money supply has come back, which I think is a very constructive thing to reigning in inflation. Uh, the Fed now is, has been uh, actively and on an unprecedented basis raising rates faster than ever before in history. Yep. They're now in, in sort of a look at, yeah, quantitative 1. easing. 1.2 trillion over the last 18 months um, in QT. Indeed. And so you think about the impacts that has on the economy, they're, they're quite dramatic. And um, I, so I think across real estate and across a lot of industries, there have been folks who've benefited um, and then folks who've been more challenged. Interestingly, uh, the inflation was a healthy thing for the grocers, one of our core tenant categories, in that they were able to pass on that inflation to the customers and, and drive better margins. Um, they were able to invest in their stores. They were able to invest in new stores. And that was following a seven or eight year plus period of deflation, which was really tough on that business. So Where um, their margins were just getting eaten up. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we're now in the, in the in the recovery phase of of the impacts of that liquidity. I think, you know, particularly when you look at durable goods, you're seeing inflation come in. I think the Fed is telegraphed that it's willing to wait and and sort of read the data as to what to do next. As you know, I were talking about earlier, the market's racing ahead and predicting uh, additional rate cuts to soften the landing. I'm less optimistic on that. I, I tend to be of the view that um, the normal or natural interest rate has grown as you think about the risks around the world. So I think we're, we're not going to be in that period we were before the pandemic of unnaturally low rates. I think more normalized rates, 3 to 4% in the 10-year, are going to be what persists. 
as a capital allocator, you just have to think about that in terms of what values are today and, and where you underwrite. I'm not asking for the 10 year to go back to 150. That would be lovely for my business. <laughs> I'm just asking it to go down to like 350 or 325. That would be good for us. I think it's going to, I mean, who knows, yeah. right? But I, I think it's going to probably come in a little bit from where it is, but maybe not as far as where the market is, is forecasting in terms of the forward curve. But you know what? I think that's okay. Um, just models have to reset. Return expectations have to reset. And it takes a while for the marketplace, particularly on the real estate side, for that to happen. Now, we, we, we've seen recent GDP reports on a quarterly basis of in the threes and fours. I'm going to ask for a little crystal ball prediction from Jim the Titan Taylor. Um, <laughs> are we going to keep seeing that? Are we going to see you know a soft landing where you're in the ones and twos? Or are we going to have a contraction here in 24? There, you know, there are people a lot smarter than I am prognosticating on that. I, I would say my guess is that we see a soft landing. My guess is that we see, you know, zero to one percent. You know, I, I'm not so sure we're going to see a contraction. And the reason not is just the strength of the employment market and the strength of the consumer. Um, there's a lot of concern in terms of uh, credit card debt, student loans and so forth. But you know, there's, what's often not talked about is the assets most people have who've had a house through this period of time of below market rate uh, mortgages. Yeah. So you know, I I'm more optimistic than I was a year ago that we're going to see a contraction, but it's not going to be a severe one. And um, that would be again. And when I say contraction, I mean a slowdown. Yeah. From no. Where no. We yeah. Are. A uh, yeah. Just a slowing down from today. Contraction would be a negative. So. Uh, we're in the same industry, but for us on the transaction side, that would be the best case because a soft landing, you're still having operational performance. You're not having deterioration and in, in multifamily's got some issues in rent, certainly office, but at least retail is fantastic. You know, lowest, lowest vacancies that I remember in my career, there's, there's healthy rent growth, growth. A lot of the tenants that are in place now, they've gone through the GFC They've gone through the Amazon kind of online apocalypse. They've gone through COVID. They're, they're battle-tested businesses. It doesn't mean that every year there might, you know, and we, we know the names, that every year or two there'll be a, a high-profile bankruptcy, but that, that, that happens in just in any evolution of the business. But I'm very optimistic on, on retail as an as a, as a, as a, as a asset class, but I would like to see rates come down while still maintaining operational performance because that, that would help the bid-ask gap, which, as you know, can be frustrating for as a buyer because you guys are very much a buyer. Very much, and no one's going to have their finger on that pulse the way you do when the seller has grieved enough and, this, and the buyer it's has ha stretched it's, it's happening. Yeah. It's happening, especially, I'll just tell you, in the last 90 days, we've seen pricing start breaking pretty quick now. Right. Like the first, really going back to Q3 of 2022, when we really... When buyers were just outside of like the 1031 market cycling sure. through by third, fourth quarter last year, the buyer pool had been significantly. And there was just this massive bid ask gap. It was, it was, right. it was a very challenging even for good to great brokerage to, to solve for that. But, you know, again, if rates come down and cap rates are moving now, um, you know, maybe not. And I know you guys love the grocer space. Uh, you know, grocery product was a little bit immune to that. As you know, right. there's still low yields being offered cap rates for the audience, uh, or sorry, cap rates, yields being offered for the audience. Um, I got a question for you. I, I saw this come up recently. I think it was on an earnings call for Walmart. Having, 
you know, and, and I don't know if you've been asked this yet. I am not, I am not educated on what it is. So forgive me, but there's a new diet drug. And Ozempic. Ozempic. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and supposedly it just, and I, I, who knows what we'll, what we'll say about this drug in 10 years, but supposedly it just, it's an appetite suppressant and it, it seems to be working. And I believe Walmart on their earnings call said, I don't know if it was year over year or quarter over quarter grocery sales were down because people were just weren't under hungry. Is this a real thing? Well, it's, it's interesting. Obviously you've got to take Walmart at their observation as the largest retailer in the country. Um, and certainly there's a lot of hype around Ozempic, which I believe is a diabetes medication, which is shown to suppress appetite and, and really, uh, promote, uh, weight loss. Um, so, It'll be interesting to see how broad-based the impact is um, uh, and maybe the change in consumption patterns um, from junk food to other things. Uh, but uh, it was interesting to me that it got mentioned on a, on a conference yeah, right. call. Yeah. So just something to keep an eye on. Next five years, what does it look like for Jim Taylor? I'm excited about the company continuing to grow. You know, I think we're in a great position from a platform perspective and a team perspective to continue to execute our value-add strategy, not only in the assets that we own, but, you know, we were talking a little bit about the transaction market and your view thawing. That's very encouraging to me because I believe in a more normal interest rate environment where rates are higher in fact, and, and reflect uh, greater required returns. That's, that's a great environment for a public company like Bricksmore, where we have access to capital. We're not competing against leveraged buyers who are able to lever the assets up at you know, historically low interest rates. We're competing from a, not only a cost of, but an access to capital standpoint that's an advantage. And as you and I were talking about a little bit earlier, I think the importance of platform and scale in our business has never been greater. Um, particularly with the lack of new supply, the fact that retailers really are focused on who the landlord counterparty is and their ability to execute, um, and the surety that they need as they execute their store growth plans, which, by the way, are it's a durable demand. And what I mean by that is the retailers aren't opening new stores just to open new stores. They're using data like they've never used yeah. before to predict how profitable that store is going to be. So unlike other cycles where you saw a lot of, you know, developers delivering product and markets chasing rooftops, because of the retail apocalypse, we haven't had that. Um, there's been virtually no new supply. Now, because of the capital markets disruption, there's going to be very little new supply. Um, so that means that landlords with good product and good platforms are going to out-index their share of new store openings. Yeah, I agree. And and getting back to what you're saying about tenants, um, using leveraging technology to make more educated decisions about how a store will perform, whether they're backfilling space or it's limited but new construction space. Um, one of the things we do, you know, in terms of evaluating an asset for an owner or going out as a with a sale is, is definitely from that you know, buying uh, from the data providers, the, the cell phone usage and, you know, uh, how many, where does that store rank or where does that uh, shopping 
center rank uh, as it relates to number, uh, the amount of traffic, and they're tracking these cell phones. I don't even know if the people are aware of it. it I'm sure it's a button you click. Well, well it's it's non-personally identifiable information, yeah. and that's important. Um, but what, what the cell phone data has opened up for landlords and tenants alike is an understanding of how a center actually trades. And you know what? It's not a three or five mile ring. It's an amoeba and it may stretch north, it may stretch south, west, et cetera. And so you have a much better uh, understanding of the catchment area yeah. for, the, for that. The retailers also have great data on where their customers are because they have the credit card data. And we're able to also understand what purchasings leaving the trade area served by that shopping center and what the voids are. So we're able to, we have a uh, market research group that utilizes this data run by a gentleman that used to be in site selection for one of the largest mm -hmm. retailers. And we're speaking with their research departments to understand their model, their customer, how likely they would be to be successful in that. It helps on renewals. You talked about how does the store rank. Yeah. We understand that now to a degree that we haven't. And it's exciting for me because this has really been a development over the last couple of years. And you think about AI, you think about data, you think about it aiding better yes. decision making. This is an area yeah. of tremendous growth. And I think we're just at the start. We're back, you know, a decade ago when I was selling some product for Bricksmore or, or whoever it was, it, yeah, there were, unless a tenant was forced to report store sales or told you, and even then it was like your, you know, your buddy, the the, the regional manager right. at the tenant. It was like, well, they told me it was this. Now again, it, it's not that the lights are all the way on, but there's there's you're you have a little bit more insight, and you know you could shine a light a little bit more on a performance as it relates to a renewal, or if it's a place that you're trying to get them to go into. Well, I think do you and, know and, what and, sales is highly correlated to traffic. Yes, <laughs> yeah. so. If you understand the AUV of a particular tenant and you understand, as you were saying, where that store ranks in the chain, where it ranks in the state, where it ranks in the in the metro, you got a pretty good idea. You have a pretty good idea. It, it, and again, to your point, it really started, at least for us, like where we started using it in our BOVs or even OMs was, um, I think the first company was Placer. This was like five or six yes. years ago. Now we, we found even better um data with a company called Alpha Maps. And we're just, I mean, there's not a, on the retail side, there's not an asset we look at from an underwriting, from a BOV, from OM, that that that, that data doesn't have a massive impact on, on how we value and or position the property. Sure, and if the property is successful, it helps you drive price. Absolutely. Um, all right, let me bring this home. You, uh, you so I, I was writing this down, four years as an accountant, four years as an attorney, nine years, as a, you know, at, at what eventually became Wachovia, four years at East Hill Wells, seven years at Bricksmore, you're, you're getting close to the longest period of time. And Jim, the Titan Taylor, uh, you know, you, you're always uh, looking for a challenge. Like, do you, is this, you see this, you see yourself here for a long time or? I'm still as excited. I know I'm asking a tough question. No, here, not at yeah. all. I'm still as excited today as the day that I started with the benefit of a real exciting transformation having been accomplished. The question now is how big can we grow this opportunity? Um, I think we've, we're well positioned in terms of team and platform to really continue to consolidate within this industry and capture more than our share. So I'm excited about that. And, and it's an interesting time. We've 
had the ability to fix the balance sheet, fix the portfolio. Now it's about looking outward and seeing how can we take our competitive platform and drive real value for our stakeholders. So I'm, I'm excited as I've ever been. And you know, it's funny the the time periods, when you add up all the investment banking time, it was a little bit longer. Um, I still have a lot of excitement about the role and I'm looking forward to the challenge that's ahead. And you know, the last almost eight years, Gone, gone by, by in an instant. Yeah. yeah well, it, uh, it will, that will happen when you're having fun, but you're also having challenges in the sense of, of you got to solve problems. And, and when you're, when you're busy and you're busy doing something that to your point, you know, you have a passion for you, 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 you enjoy, and maybe not every aspect of, of your job, but you enjoy your job. Time does tend to fly. It does. Very fortunate and very grateful. Um, you've had a very diverse career from an industry, from a skill set. So, I, you know, I always like to ask this question of any of our audience, but I'm very interested to hear your answer because you, you've, you know, you, you, you've had a, a wide range of uh, experience now. Is What have been, you, you talked about a, an alumni event, I think it was Wells Fargo uh, a year ago, and, and having a lot of young uh, guys and gals who were underneath you, they've gone on to achieve great things. But whether it was people you interacted with when you were an accountant or an attorney or iBanking or brokerage or in your role as an executive at two retail companies, um, what has been the common trait, characteristic thread of those young men and women who have gone on to really rise in their in in the ranks of whatever their profession is or really grow as as young people like to say um what has been the common uh, characteristic of those people that you've seen uh, over the arc of your career curiosity they have to like to learn passion they have to not accept good enough competitive in a good way and also integrity which to me means confronting reality confronting the problem and learning and growing um you know, there are lots of different shapes and sizes, but those are some common character traits that I look for and have seen be successful over and over again. Um, you know, and that broader sense of purpose also, not knowing exactly what you want to do, but having a direction. And uh, you mentioned the alumni party. It was really a great moment for me to reconnect with people that I'd worked with over, you know, 15, 20 years and see them doing well. Um, I love building great teams. I love watching the success of people on my team. And that's probably what thrills me more than anything else. Yeah. And, and you've done a, a good job assembling a great team. I know one of my good buddies over at Bricksmore, Mark Horgan, he was with you at Eastill, right? And then he was, he was, he had actually started with me as an analyst, um, went out, worked in the industry, came back into investment banking, worked on the retail team at Eastill, mm -hmm. and he's a tremendous partner. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to go see him either later today or tomorrow. I, gotta, I, I know I got him on the schedule here, so I'll, I'll, I'll be over there. But uh, I'm going to ask the question I just asked in reverse, though, is over the course of your career, and perhaps maybe somebody was messaging, I, you know, I want to I be at the top one day. I want to grow. I want to you know, rise or even just simply put, I'm looking to earn a promotion. But there's a lot of people who don't achieve that. And so, you know, the question I asked earlier was like, what is a common characteristic of those who who thrive in, in their industry or, you know, succeed in their industry? 
What has been a common challenge that people have faced who don't necessarily get to where they want to go or, or they kind of get in their own it's way? It's easy, yeah. Kyle. One word, persistence. We're all going to fail. We're all going to fall down. The question is, what do you do? And how many times do you get up? And those who succeed are separated from those who don't by that one character trait. Um, and it's, it's being kind to yourself for having failed, but tough on yourself in terms of the lessons from the failure. And it's that passion to grow and to, to learn, I think, separates those that don't um, achieve from those who do. And... Uh, there's no, I think as my path has demonstrated, there's no one path. There's no, clearly, yeah. there's no one formula. Um, it's, it's really about having a commitment to growth a willingness to fail and a willingness to learn from your failure and always picking yourself up, being kind to yourself in terms of having failed, but tough on yourself in terms of, okay, what do I need to learn? And uh, that it's that one character trait, you know, that I think differentiates. I mean, I'm going to ask you to evaluate yourself here. If whenever, I know you got a lot of gas in the tank, but 10, 15, 20 years from now, whenever you retire, if you had one word, you would like that group of people at that party to describe you as a professional and as a person, what, what would you want that word to be to describe Jim Taylor? That's a tough one. Handsome. <laughs> um, I, I, I would want to, them to have felt like I was invested in their success. That you cared. That I cared. They know that, that I was fair, tough, challenging, and a good leader. What, um, what advice would you have for young professionals, um, someone thinking of starting a business, someone thinking, someone who's starting in a career, regardless, who, um, perhaps inherently has ambition and has desire and has passion and integrity, but just simply put, maybe just doesn't even know where to start. You know, find something you're interested in and learn about it, um, I think is, is a key. But, but also know that there's not one path, that be great in whatever it is you're doing in the moment, I think is important. And what does it mean to be great? It means to out-hustle, out-work, out-think. Um, be committed to picking yourself up, having persistence, and knowing that there's not one formula should give you some freedom to explore and try things. Um, I think a lot of time can be spent thinking and evaluating instead of just doing. Uh, if, you, if you act and you're willing to take risks, and that's important, you're willing to be uncomfortable because that's the only place growth occurs. I've never regretted a risk taken. Now, they haven't all panned out well, but I think that's important to appreciate. You don't know. No one knows. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And I think there's an important to be humble about what you don't know and be curious, but always committed to growth and lessons and understanding that in failure, there's an opportunity. Um, I do think, I talk to young folks all the time who feel like there's a preordained path. There never is. There never is. And if you focus too much on the path instead of your own personal growth, then what's the path gotten you? So um, 
you know, that's what, that's what I, you know, tell younger people on the team and find people that you can model, find people who've been successful in their roles and pull them aside and develop those informal mentorships, uh, develop those relationships, show curiosity. And I think you'll find that that's really where the graduate school occurs. Now I'm going to ask that same, I asked the question, what did that's great answer? What advice would you have for younger professionals now? What, what is one piece of advice that you'd actually give your younger self, a young Jim Taylor, that something worry less, worry less, as Will Rogers said, worrying is repaying money you never borrowed. Um, I think we all can, can sometimes hold ourselves back with the worry or give ourselves a tax that's not worth paying. Um, so that would be the one piece of advice I would give. There's, you know, there's, no failure I deeply regret. Um, there's no success I overvalue. Um, but when I look back, I think about to my younger self, hey, it's going to be okay. That's great. Uh, last question, very practical question, actually. Are there any, is there a specific or any specific resources uh, that you would recommend to the audience that has helped you along the way? I always kind of lead the question by a book, a uh, a training a, a <laughs> there's there's one book um and it's a classic and it's the seven habits and stephen covey yes yeah great. and i think i read that when i was like 24 and i needed it we all did yeah. i did as well um it's i read it before law school and i know it was a key ingredient to my success but that idea of taking the elephant and breaking it down into manageable bites you know that you don't eat it in one bite you eat it in hundreds of bites it's the idea of setting up habits each and every day that just like making your bed, McRaven wrote about, that build confidence, that frankly build you. First thing you do in the day. Right. I hate to admit this. I still hate me making it. My <laughs> mom, she was militant. And every day I was like, I don't understand the value. And I said, one day when I grew up, I'm not making my bed. And I see the value. Yeah. But I think I'm still holding on to that. Like, I'm not making my bed today. But if you go through my the wife makes me make it for what it's worth. But yeah, I'm sure if you go through that habit of writing down your large goals and then writing below that those daily habits that move you towards those goals, you'll unleash things that you never thought possible. If you don't, it's pretty tough. I remember my, my the guy who hired me, a guy Jonathan Weiss, uh, say about a year into my career, I, I was working hard, but I was struggling. Yeah, and you know, I was just showing up and just doing. He probably saw that I needed it, but he recommended that book. And, yeah. and because I'm hard-headed, and I don't just mean like I have a hard head, I do have a hard <laughs> head. Like, I think that's part of playing football. You just develop, no, hard-headed, like, I'm yeah. not, I think it sat on my desk for a year. Right. Like, I'm not reading this, what I need. And then I read it, and it was it was a big difference maker for me. Indeed. You know, and so you just, by you saying that, I, one of my first feelings, I got to go back and read that again. But I did read it when in my, my 20s, and... I was able to apply some of the um, recommendations that that, yeah. that he had. So thank you for that. Thank you for this, Jim. This has been awesome. It's uh, always great to see you. I'm sure I'll see you at the show later this week. I can't uh, say enough good things about you, about your whole team, um, at Bricksmore, about what you guys are doing. Um, I'm a big fan and uh, appreciate uh, the relationship we've had over the years and continuing to grow on it. So, so do I, Kyle. Thank you for having me, and congratulations on what you've built. I mean, it's truly phenomenal and impressive. I appreciate it. Hey, you know, you, 
Sell some assets, baby. All right, give us, give us, uh, the, give us your tired seller expectations right. down. Well, yeah, I get you know people are always like you know get the buyer to pay more. I was like, I'll get the seller to take less, right? <laughs> uh, give me your tired, your hungry, your poor. Uh, Jim, it's great to see you. Thank you so much. This was fantastic, and um, yeah, just all the best. Thank you. You too.